Welcome to the Illuminate Recovery Podcast. We shed light on mental health issues, mental illness, and addiction recovery. Ways to cope, manage, and inspire. Beyond the self-care we will discuss, you may need the help of a licensed professional. My name is Kurt Neider. I'm a husband, a father, entrepreneur, a handyman, and a student of life. I avoid conflict, I deflect with humor, and I'm fascinated by the human experience. And I'm Shelly Mangum. I am a clinical mental health counselor, and my favorite role of all times is grandma. I am a seeker of truth, and I feel like life should be approached with tremendous curiosity. I ask the dumb questions. I fill in the gaps. The Illuminate Recovery Podcast is brought to you by Illuminate Billing Advocates. Make billing and collection simple with leader in substance abuse and mental health billing services. Verification and analysis of benefits, pre-authorizations, utilization management, accurate claim submission and management, denial and appeal management, and industry-leading reporting. Improve your practice's cash flow and your ability to help your clients with Illuminate Billing Advocates. Today on the podcast, Kurt and I have the privilege of talking with Paulo Grayson. Um, Paulo is out of Los Angeles, California. He is the Chief Executive Officer at No Matter What Recovery. I love that name. Um, And No Matter What Recovery integrates that addiction and mental health piece of treatment. It's got an intensive um, outpatient program with PHP and IOP treatment, um, and, and they believe that in reestablishing the way clients handle life in the journey beyond treatment and giving them foundation that we don't drink or use no matter what. And that's their premise. Paulo, I appreciate you being on today. And and I know that we've talked a little bit before and you have a fantastic story. So I'm kind of excited to to share that and, and, uh, and have people get to know you a little bit better. Thank you, Shelley and Kurt. Thank you so much for having me on. Um, Yeah, you know, I I love sharing my story. I think that, you know, obviously the root of why I started working in treatment is being sober myself. So, um, you know, getting the opportunity to share my experience, strength and hope is always just in whatever capacity, whether it's podcasts, whether it's one on one with people in the programs, whether it's with our clients, whether, you know, Uh, I love being able to talk about sobriety and being sober and the journey that I've had because I feel like it is really the greatest honor and gift that I've received in my life. So it it is an amazing and, and, um, what's the word? It's, it's a, it's really quite an honor as you probably know, to be part of people's recovery, right? And, um, to do your own is, is a piece, but then to be part of someone else's and to have that that experience and to witness everything that's about their recovery and everybody's a little bit different. It is an incredible honor. Yeah, for sure. It's, you know, when people ask me why I got into this industry, um, you know, I really didn't know how to answer that in the beginning, but you know, I, I just was drawn to work in this field and the part that like, keeps me going every day is the success stories and seeing the light turn on, um, with our, you know, our clients, like it's such a beautiful experience to have a conversation with someone when they first admit to, you know, a week or two later when, you know, they have this like joy and this life in their, you know, in their eyes. It's, it's really beautiful. It, it, 
you know, it's a very touching part of working in treatment. Yeah, it's incredible. So I'm curious as to, everybody has a story and, and, and I love the story, right? The story is kind of, I don't know, there's just so many elements in the story and everybody that's listening will get a different piece from what you share. And so that's the thing, the beauty of a story is that everybody can take something home and it's, and it might be different for everybody who's listening. So maybe talk a little bit about, you know, go back a ways, childhood, right? Because we know that so much of, of and, and not always, but so much of using has to do with these traumas, whether we recognize their traumas or not. And so talk a little bit about what your childhood looked like and then bring us, you know, bring us forward. Absolutely. So, you know, first of all, I grew up in a suburb of New Orleans, Louisiana. Um, I'm the middle of three boys. And so I have your classic middle child syndrome. Um, and then my older brother's name is Scott. My little brother's name is Steven and I'm Paulo. Uh, <laughs> and then my older brother was in football. My little brother was in karate and I did ballet and Boy Scouts. So, you know, the destiny of me being queer um, you know, and growing up in a society in, you know, the late 80s, early 90s, where being queer wasn't accepted, I feel like that's really where my trauma started. Um, because I had to master the art of becoming a chameleon and, you know, really try to gain friends and relationships based on the perception of what I thought people wanted me to be, because I could never truly be myself um and you know as i've gotten older i look back and i see that like i had the most beautiful childhood um and my parents did the best that they could with what they had um you know all of our needs were met they were very hard working um they did their best but at the time i felt like they you know i had these expectations um that I had a chip on my shoulder, you know, that I had to be somebody that I wasn't. And um, through, you know, doing the work in a 12-step program, I really got to do the dirty work and, like, look at, um, you know, I just had to be in acceptance that my parents did the best they could with what they had. And for the longest time, I had built these resentments up against them um, and my family that, like, you know, I just wasn't accepted and I couldn't be who I was. And that was partly the case. You know, I think, you know, my parents grew up in a generation where being gay wasn't acceptable. Um, and I, you know, my coming out story, like I love being able to watch TV today and see all of this queer representation in the media. But like when I was growing up, that wasn't the case. There were no, I didn't really see people that looked like me on television. Um, I didn't really have anybody that I could look up to. Um, and so I really had to figure out my journey myself. Um, and I came out at a very young age. I came out when I was 16 and, um, I was rebelling. I, you know, was acting out, uh, you know, I craved attention, whether it was positive or negative, I just needed attention. And, in doing that, I got a lot, I found out early in life that like I would get a lot more attention by misbehaving than I would by excelling. Um, and whether I was getting positive or negative attention, I was getting attention because I just, I, I, I needed that for whatever reason. And, um, you know, 
I, did I have like this huge traumatic experience when I was a child? No, I don't think that I did. I think that, you know, the biggest thing that affected me in my life was being bullied. Like I was bullied in school and I wasn't comfortable telling my family. So I had to, you know, be, have rocks thrown at me, uh, be spit on, be called, you know, really terrible things at school and then go home to my family and pretend like everything was okay. Cause I was so embarrassed that like I, I was being bullied. And so I was, I was suppressing all of that, all of those feelings. Um, and it ended up resulting in me hating myself, which I think really propelled my, my drug, my drug use and alcoholism. Mm. Well, and you talk about, you know, was there big, this big traumatic experience? No, but, but the small T's, and, and I would say yours are probably a little bit bigger than just small T traumas when you're being bullied every day and where you've got this, this um, inconsistency in your, in your environment, right? That here's, here's how you're showing up, here's who you are, but nobody accepts you that way. So those are pretty big, you know, big trauma pieces, if you ask me. When I was a kid, I remember going to, um, I would go to the grocery store with my mom. Um, I would always hang out with the florist. Like my mom would do her grocery shopping and I would just go do flowers. Like it was, <laughs> I thought it was a normal thing to do. And there was this, you know, those little gumball machines that are in the front of grocery stores. So there was this one specific machine that would give out a, piece of plastic like a plastic ball that had like a gel glitter in it and I remember as a kid like in probably seven or eight like I remember taking that like glitter gel and I remember hiding it thinking like I can't show this to people and this is at a seven-year-old I can't show this to people because glitter is feminine and I shouldn't be portraying this behavior and as a seven-year-old kid like I'm sitting there doing flowers and like have this like ball of glitter gel in my pocket and I remember thinking like I'm doing something bad when I all I really wanted to do was like put the glitter gel all, <laughs> all over my face and um, you know I, I don't know why at that age I, I instinctively had this feeling that that was bad hmm. and then it's interesting right that you can look back and observe what was going on for you and the thoughts that you were you know having at that time and and it helps you make sense of it because I've heard you say your parents were doing the best you can you know, or the best that they can. And, and that's a huge piece to be able to come to that and not have the blame and the resentment that you talked about. I'm curious a little bit about what your career as a ballerina looked like, though. <laughs> it, was very, it was hardly a career. I literally <laughs> just danced and um, I did more theater. So dance came with it. Um, so I was in thespians in high school. Um, and I was doing honor choir and small vocal ensemble and show choir, it just like all of these different things. And so, um, I was very, I, 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 you know, I was, I was in theater. So like the next thing you have to do is try to be that triple threat of like singing, acting, dancing. Um, but I can barely walk much less dance. <laughs> <laughs> I, did, I, even though I was doing dance, I definitely wasn't, uh, by any means a pro, um, and it was definitely more for just uh, just to kind of get a community of, of people. Yeah, yeah. So when you came out and you talk about coming out at 16, is that to your family? Is that to everybody? Because like, it sounds like maybe at school 
It sounds like at school maybe there was something going on there where they knew or something, but your family didn't. I know. Talk about that a little bit. So again, remember when I said I had, you know, I'd mastered the art of becoming a chameleon. Um, I had a lot of, at the time I didn't know what it was and this took many years of therapy, but I had a lot of internalized homophobia. Um, and so even at that young age, I would learn how to present more masculine when I was at home than I would when I was out in public as a child. Um, and you know, I, I actually came out in school about six months before I came out to my family. Um, and there was never really a conversation per se. Um, it was more of, I was getting expelled from school and the conversation about me being gay came up in the expulsion. Cause again, I was rebelling and I was doing stupid stuff like skipping school and smoking cigarettes in the parking lot and, um, you know, cursing teachers out, you know, your normal everyday college rebellion, or I'm sorry, high school rebellion stuff. And, um, that was a joke. And, um, (laughs) I was actually, I was, I was a terror as a child and my teenagers, because I really didn't know. I, I, I was dealing with my feelings the best way that I could. And so I, you know, essentially I was living a double life, right? Like I would go to school and, and start to come out and be gay. And then I would go home and I would, you know, act completely differently around my family just because I was so scared. There was so much fear because I thought the way that I was acting or the way that I was feeling was wrong. And so when when you did come out to your family, and it sounds like it wasn't necessarily intentional that that happened, how did they take that? Because, you know, you already set the stage for this. It's That's like, that's, this is trauma to parents back in that time frame, right? It, it was. And I, you know, to... Again, and I, I do want to say this, that like my family and I have the most beautiful relationship today. And, um, uh, you know, it took a lot of work, but I don't think that my parents acted the way that they did because I was gay. I think it was because I was rebelling and being gay. Um, but there was a, I was, I was emancipated when I was 16. So I, I legally separated from my family at that age because, um, you know, my parents didn't, it was, it was both. It was the rebelling and being gay. But, you know, I, I was stealing my parents' car and going out to gay bars. And, like, I was doing, like, really heavy stuff. And so my parents and I both agreed that it would be best if I went out and left on my own. And I know that today it was a very, very hard decision for my parents. But they just didn't know what to do with me. Um, and it was better for me because I got to go explore my life and do my own thing. But um, it wasn't the best situation for many years. Um, my parents and I didn't actually get a healthy, loving relationship until I got sober. Which, which is kind of that lead in is here. We've got a 16 year old young man who's got the freedom of an adult without maybe the insight of an adult. So talk about how, how that shifted the way or, you know, led the way into the rest of your adulthood. So, you know, I mean, unfortunately, my story is very common. It's not anything that is not uncommon. You know, people that, that you know, identify as part of the LGBT community um, have a more challenging, most people have a more challenging time um, coming out and building, you know, and figuring that part of their life out with their families, with their friends. You know, I mean, there's definitely an extra level of, of trauma that usually occurs. And so when that happened with me, I 
Um, when I left my parents' house, you know, at 16, I dropped out of high school in ninth grade, and I didn't know what else to do, so I started using drugs, selling drugs, and engaging in sex work. Um, and that's how I supported myself um, for three years until I got sober uh, the first time. So, you know, and it's, again, it's not an uncommon story. You know, our treatment center here that my partner Anthony and I opened, um, we are all inclusive, but we do have a focus on the LGBT community um, because, you know, A, it's a community that we're part of, but B, you know, we really noticed that there was a, uh, this demographic was completely underserved. Um, and, you know, it's, it's crazy that in 2022, this community is still um, having to fight for certain things, you know, like acceptance and love and compassion. And, you know, so that's something that we really, you know, have as part of our mission here at, at no matter what recovery is when people come in, you know, whether they're black, white, blue, purple, orange, gay, straight, trans, non-binary, they, them, whatever they identify as, however they identify we love them till they can learn to love themselves. And, you know, I, it's just really, really important to us that that is our mission um, in treatment. But, you know, this population specifically has what I've learned, has an extra layer of trauma, I think, than a lot of other populations. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, you know, because, you know, my, again, my story isn't uncommon, but like the reason that I use is to be accepted. Because I couldn't, you know, drug use within the LGBT community is so prevalent and so common that, you know, people tend to, especially me, do it to learn to become a part of that community. Um, And so, you know, at 16, I was, you know, it's what I, what I did. It's what I learned. And, um, you know, it, it was a coping skill. It was a way to feel accepted, my drug use. It was a way to make friends. It was a way to do, to pretty much, it was my life, right? And then not only was I using, I was I was distributing it, and um, I got caught up in, in selling drugs at a very early age. And so in that, every relationship in my life was a transaction. You know, like I only knew how to have transactional relationships. And... In getting sober, I really had to learn how to have relationships that were based on genuine mutual love and respect and not on like, what can I get from you and what can you get from me? Um, and so, you know, we see a lot of that here in our in our community that when clients come in, you know, again, my story is not uncommon. Um, and that's what's really sad. Hmm. And it's interesting. And, and, you know, I grew up in the era where you know, if, if you were gay and walking down the street with your gay partner and holding hands, you put yourself at risk because other, you know, you put yourself out there for that bullying from others and, and it happens. And so I don't know that everybody really recognizes just what kind of a position that puts you in when you want to be who you are, but nobody accepts you that way. I, my partner and I were just home for Christmas um, visiting my family, and we were at Walmart in Picayune, Mississippi, and we got out of the car, and we went to go hold hands like we always do, and I, for a second, like, I felt like I was 16 again because I was, like, where I grew up, and I, like, had to take a breath and, like, look around and make sure that, like, there was nobody around that 
that I felt uncomfortable or unsafe around. And it was, it was the first time in a while where like I had, and this was literally two months ago where I, or Christmas a month ago and where I was like, Oh my gosh. Like, and it came, I'm like, how, I can't believe that like in, you know, this day and age, I still have to feel like, make sure that like my, I'm safe in my surroundings when I'm holding my partner's hand. Um, you know, and, um, I, we're very lucky to be living in one of the gayest cities in the world and in Los Angeles. But, you know, I, I guess my message is for everyone that, you know, is in Picayune, Mississippi, or, you know, these small, these small cities across the United States that like being gay is okay. You will find your way. And no matter what, you'll have a community that loves you. You just have to find the community. And I wish I had someone to tell me that when I was a kid, because I didn't. And, you know, I had to take a really long road to get to where I am, which I wouldn't change for the world. But I'm really glad that there is that there's been so much progression with the LGBT community, especially over the last few years. Um, And, you know, and I'm a white gay male. Right. So there's, you know, imagine having an African-American trans person you know, in the middle of the country, like there's still like, there's so many other layers to that as well, where it's like that community is unfortunately so marginalized that, you know, I, I feel like I had it really easy compared to a lot of the other people that like I meet, you know, I can't even imagine the strength and courage that it would take to be a black trans person um, in a small town in the middle of Alabama. Like, I just, you know what I mean? Yeah. I can't imagine that. Well, um, so. yeah, that. I mean, it's so difficult because as, as a human, as human beings, we like things that are familiar. But when it's different than us, it scares us. And then we don't know how to behave and we don't know how to think about it and we don't know the rules around it. And so it's, it's not intentional, but it's, it's just lack of understanding, right? Lack of experience, lack of frame of reference. And, and, and not that that's an excuse, but that's human nature and human behavior. And so it's, it becomes a, a long process, like you've said, to kind of change some of those stigmas in the environment. And I wish it would be as easy as what you just said. You know, I mean, I, I, I would say a majority of the people are misinformed. And then there are also, you know, those people that are more than misinformed that just, you know, are closed-minded and um, that, you know, have certain challenges with, with people that, you know, are different. Um, and so, you know, unfortunately that is what leads to substance abuse, to mental health, to trauma. You know, I mean, I'm sure there's a bunch of other things too, but you know, for me, it was definitely not feeling accepted, um, which really had a major impact in my, in my substance use. I'm curious a little bit, Paulo, about, um, about your recovery journey, you know, you, you, you know, you engaged in, in the, in the behaviors for a long time to just survive as this young teenager trying to figure it out and explore. And, and so how long did your drug use and addiction go on? And then how did you end up getting sober? So I've had two sobrieties. Um, my first sobriety, I got sober when I was 18. Um, and I'm the kind of drug addict where I don't get sober unless I have to. Um, you know, I, I got sober and I, I'm very open about my story. Um, 
and you know, I I became HIV positive when I was 17 years old. Um, and after Hurricane Katrina, I was displaced in Chicago, um, and it was my first winter in Chicago, and um, I didn't, I wasn't treating my HIV because I was heavy into my addiction, and um, I. It, again, it was winter, and I ended up catching pneumonia, um, and I was in the ICU at 18 years old, deep in my addiction. I hadn't talked to my family in two years. I didn't have anyone. All I you know, knew how to do was sell drugs. I had a ninth grade education. Um, I had a hose going in every hole in my body. Um, and I was literally on my deathbed. You know, a normal a normal T cell count is around a thousand to fifteen hundred. I think. Don't quote me on that, but it's it's high. My T cells were at fourteen, which are like my fighter cells that fight against, you know, um, sickness. And then my viral load, which is how many copies of the HIV virus was mutated in my body, was over a million. So I, you know, I basically was on death's door. I, and don't, I, I, I'm not a doctor, <laughs> so don't quote me on those numbers. I know that mine were very elevated and I was dying. Um, I don't know what normal ones are. Um, but, you know, I, I know that, like, I never want to feel that alone again. Um, and um, so I, there was a nurse practitioner, um, and I was at the Illinois Masonic Hospital in Chicago. And um, this woman's name was Kristen Keglovitz. And I always get teary-eyed when I tell the story. Um she, I was her first patient ever, and um, she looked at me and she, she said, Paulo, tonight's the night that you can live or die. You need to make your choice. And um, I remember laying in that hospital bed that night, again, with a hose in every hole in my body, and I was just sobbing, and I, I prayed like I didn't know what else to do, and I just, you know, I remember having a moment where I was like, I can't do this anymore. Um, and I was, I just turned 18. Uh, my birthday is November 17th. So it was like right around my birthday. And, um, you know, there is uh, the program, the 12 step program that I'm in is called Crystal Meth Anonymous or CMA. And uh, CMA had just started in Chicago in 2006. And I remember going to my first CMA meeting and there were probably like seven or eight people in the room. And um, the men in that room um, really taught me how to navigate life as a sober person and i did an outpatient program uh called crystal clear at the howard brown health center um and kristen keglovitz remained my my nurse practitioner and got me on hiv meds and um it was so bad that i had to have like food delivered to my house um you know i was on an uh, uh antibiotic called bactrim so basically like if your t-cells fall below a certain point you have to take preventative antibiotics so that you don't die um, so I was on that, and um, that was where my journey in recovery started. And um, I, it, this was right when um, online work applications were a thing in 2006. Like you didn't have to like go in and bring your resume in anymore. You can fill out an application. And so my friends were like, "Okay, girl, you need to get a job. Like, <laughs> you know, you're 90 days sober." So I remember applying at Nordstrom, Michigan Avenue, um, and I went in for an interview. And again, I was 90 days sober, had a ninth grade education, never had a job, like just sold drugs. That's all I knew what to do. And I was a mess in this interview. And this woman was like, why should I hire you? 
And I remember saying, I wish, I, I just need someone that can have more faith in me than I can have in myself. And I just started crying in this interview. when <laughs> I walked out of there and I was like, I'm never getting this job. And um, they hired me as a cosmetic stock boy. It was my first job ever. Um, and I left Nordstrom uh, seven years later as an executive director for cosmetic styling and ended up working in cosmetics and in the beauty industry and skincare and makeup. Um, and in that time of my sobriety, I was working at Nordstrom and I, they'd moved me to Miami and then Los Angeles and I was sober and thriving. Um, and I was diagnosed with testicular cancer. So, um, I had testicular cancer and I didn't tell my, and I was working on my relationship with my family and my sobriety. So I didn't want to tell my parents that I had cancer because I didn't want them to find out about my HIV status. So I started keeping a secret and, um, Basically, I remember calling my mom one day. I was on, on my way home from UCLA and getting chemo, and I was, like, throwing up outside, like, out of the window as I was driving. And my mom was like, are you okay? And I'm like, yeah, I'm fine, I'm fine. Um, and the next day, my mom showed up to Los Angeles, and I didn't have any hair anywhere in my body, and I answered the door. And I'll never forget these words. She said, how could you take the ability away from me to be a mother? And when she said that to me, I lost it obviously. <laughs> and, um, and in the back of my mind, though, when she had said that, I still hadn't told her that I was HIV positive. So that was like looming in the background. And I was holding on to all of this stuff in the background. Um, and I eventually relapsed because of the secret that I was keeping. Um, my mom was diagnosed with stage three lung cancer. Um, I moved to Atlanta for a new job. I left my sober community. I wasn't connected. I had an expense account. I was making good money. I was, you know, 26 years old. I had the body. I had looks. I was just, you know, living this like life. And I just forgot, I forgot how bad my addiction had gotten. And I wasn't connected to a program and I wasn't connected to a higher power. And so I um, was at a bar in New Orleans when my mom was in ICU. Um, and someone offered me a dose of GHB. And that one dose of G led to three years of misery. Um, and I say that in my story all the time. I, you know, I, it wasn't long before, um, it was about two weeks before I started selling drugs again. Like it happened just like that. I had lost this huge job that I had gotten. Um, I got arrested in Alabama, in Vestavia Hills, Alabama. I was driving from um, New Orleans to Atlanta with a significant amount of drugs in my car, uh, in a car that my parents were paying for <laughs> and um uh, i you know just that three years got really bad and in that three years i i i there were some lines in the sand that i promised i would never cross that i did um which the main ones was using intravenously um and when i started using crystal meth intravenously it took about six months before i ended up back in the hospital on my deathbed um, I was actually um, using in my neck, uh, and I had an abscess in my neck, and I was I was dying from MRSA and blood and staph like staph infection and blood infection and and everything. So I was in Cedar Sinai, um, and uh, I was like, I need to get sober again. So I ended up going to detox and then to treatment, and here I am six years later. <laughs> 
What a story. Um, oh my gosh. I know. I'm sorry. I didn't think it was going to take that long. Um, but yeah, that's my story. It's kind of crazy. Um, you know, and through all of that, there was obviously, you know, the selling of the drugs, the crime, the, you know, the manipulating my parents out of hundreds, like over a hundred thousand dollars. My parents thought I was in college, so they were funding my addiction. And, you know, it, it really got really bad. Um, you know, I didn't care who I hurt. I was very selfish. I didn't love myself. I hurt. I was like a little tornado that was going from city to city. And, you know, I left all kinds of things in my path. And, you know, luckily in getting sober six years ago, I've had the ability to make right everything that I've done wrong. And it's been a really lengthy process and very in-depth. And I'm so grateful for that experience. I'm, you know, um, now in my second year of college, I finally got my GED. I'm on Dean's List in college, and, you know, uh, I, I promised myself that I would finally get an education, because having a ninth grade education was always something that made me feel so much shame, and um, so that's been a huge goal, and yeah. Hmm. Very, I mean, it's, it's incredible to see what addiction does to people, right? Because it, it, it really, addiction changes everything. It changes the way we think and feel and what drives us, and and it is an illness. It just is an illness that takes over. It's so, you know, I share this a lot in meetings when I tell my story, but like I was full of fear, right? Like I think fear fueled my addiction. I was afraid of not being loved, fear of being loved, fear of abandonment, fear of not being good enough, fear of financial insecurity, fear of, um, I think I said abandonment, which was a huge, like fear of abandonment really drove everything in my life. And, um, you know, I was a walking ball of fear and I finally had to surrender and do the work that it takes to like change my life, you know? And, um, in my first sobriety, my life came together like this, literally 90 days. I had a job, I was going to meetings, I built a life cause I hadn't had the chance to do that much damage. It was only three years. And, um, but like the second sobriety, I had to work for every single thing that I have. I mean, I literally had to take a bus three hours to work each day for a year and a half. Like I had to, you know, which to be honest now, I wish I could take the bus and not have to sit in traffic. Um, I, <laughs> I would love to like, just like read a book and, and ride to work on the bus. Um, you know, but, but, um, you know, there were a lot of, I just use that as an example. I had to, you know, I, I, my, my credit score, um, you know, I'm still working on that today to clear up the wreckage of my past. You know, I mean, there's just so much stuff that like I damaged and the relationships that I damaged and the, you know, taking advantage of my family and just everything. Like I'm, you know, getting sober was the best thing, but also the hardest thing, but today the most rewarding thing I've ever had to do. Hmm. You know, something else I'd like to ask you about if, if you're open to that is, you know, you know, back in the day when, when you were diagnosed with HIV, you know, it was a, I don't know, maybe it wasn't then, but not that long before that, it was a death sentence to have HIV. And, and here you are today, you know, you look healthy and you look good. What's, what's changed over the years with treatment of HIV? So for me and my experience, again, I'm not a medical professional by any means, just in my, my experience, I know that like the, the number of medications that I've had to take is probably the biggest change that I've noticed. Like when I first was diagnosed in 2006, I think I had to take like six pills a day. And then, you know, as time went on, um, I remember a new medication came out called Rayataz, And one of the side effects of that were, uh, 
the yellowing of eyes. And I was on it for about six months. Sorry. I was on it for about six months and I went home and my mom was like, why are your eyes yellow? She thought I had jaundice. And I'm like, I don't know. Um, and it ended up being a side effect of the medication. So I got switched from that medication to something else. And then, you know, when I had, when I had testicular cancer, I had to be switched again because I couldn't mix the chemo with that medication. And so, um, luckily today I'm on one pill a day, um, you know, which is definitely manageable. Um, you know, I'm undetectable, which means untransmittable. Um, you know, and it, but for me, the journey has been, um, I've noticed in the medications that I was taking, which obviously were the side effects, like the GI upset and, um, and that kind of stuff. But, um, today there's just been so much more awareness around HIV, which has been amazing. And now they have other options like PrEP and, you know, I think that the stigma for HIV is a little less, um, scary as it, as it was when I was first diagnosed, but like, could you imagine dating <laughs> at an 18 year old that like I go on a date and I'm like, Oh, by the way, I, you know, I'm a recovering drug addict. I have a ninth grade education. I, you know, have an AIDS diagnosis and I make $8 and 25 cents an hour. You know what I mean? Like, it just was like, um, uh, it was, it was, it was hard, you know, it was a hard conversation to have. And, um, you know, so there was definitely a lot of stigma around it. And, you know, I've had, you know, I've gone on a date where somebody got up and left dinner. Um, you know, somebody shut a door in my face, you know, um, I was self-conscious even like cooking around my family. Cause I'm like, what if I cut myself cutting an onion and then like, am I going to expose my, you know? Um, and I remember asking Kristen one time too, cause I was getting a puppy and I went in just to meet with her and I was like, Oh my God, can my dog catch HIV? Yeah. <laughs> and she was like, she was like, what's the first letter of H or HIV? And I was like, human. Uh, ha, ha, ha. It was a joke. So, um, but you know, it was just this like whole learning process. And, um, you know, I randomly recently, somebody asked me, cause I think that there's this, there's been two case studies now where HIV has been removed from someone's body or they got rid of it and been cured. Um, and somebody was like, would you, you know, have that procedure done? And to be honest, I've been HIV positive and had an AIDS diagnosis over half my life. And I don't know what, I don't know how to not be HIV positive, <laughs> um, today, but you know, when I was diagnosed, it was you know, I was deep in my addiction, but you know, when I first, when I got sober and like really came to terms with it, it was really, really traumatic. Um, and you know, luckily today as an openly out gay HIV positive man, I have no secrets from my family. They know that I was an IV drug user. They know about my HIV status. Um, you know, I lost my mom in August, I think right around the time we started talking. Mm. Um, and, um, you know, it was the worst experience in my life but um you know I was able to show up for my family emotionally and and you know it just the fact that like I had zero secrets from her we had no unfinished business made it so much easier for me um because I was able sorry I don't know what I said because I was able to like be there and be present and and show up for my family and be there with my brothers and my dad and you know it I it was something that I you know, feared a lot because my parents were getting older and my mom only had one lung. Um, and so, you know, working on my relationship with my family was my, the biggest gift that I've gotten from sobriety. Um, you know, I, I'm an uncle, I'm a son, I'm a brother, I'm a, you know, uh, I, you know, I just hope that I make my mom proud. And, um, you know, it, it's, it's just been a few, it's been a hard few months. Um, 
but I, you know, I'm just so grateful for the life that, and the relationship that we had built through me being sober. Yeah. Which comes back to the point that, you know, relationships are probably the most important thing that we do and they're the hardest thing that we do. So it's pretty fantastic that, you know, your mom had a lot of courage too, to come out and face you and, you know, call you out and, you know, try and create that relationship with you that she wanted really bad too. You never had to wonder what was on Cindy's mind. Um, you know, she, she was a fighter. She was a cheerleader. My mom was just the most beautiful woman. And, um, you know, for, I mean, my parents are older. My dad's just turned 78 last week and my mom was 68 and to have a gay HIV positive recovering addict son, um, you know, it was a lot for them, it, you know, of that generation. And, you know, it, it just my, you know, it, my, um, my fiance, um, my mom and him were planning the engagement before she died. You know what I mean? Like for my mom to like be that involved in my life and my gay relationship, um, you know, is something that I never thought would happen ever. And I think like through my sobriety, we both had the opportunity to grow. Um, and I think what was more important than anything was having a relationship with each other. And, um, you know, so even in, with treatment, right, Tony, my partner and I say this all the time, like when the families are involved in the treatment process, um, for me, it always gets me emotional because I know how many times my parents had to make that call, um, you know, to help line up treatment for me or finances or, or make sure that I was okay. And so whenever I talk to families, like I, I get choked up every time because, you know, not everybody has a family that fights for them to get sober, you know? And, and so, um, you know, I feel like the family aspect to treatment is so important because, um, for me, because I don't know where I would be without my family. Mm. And in my disease, I painted this picture of myself as them being these terrible people um, and it was really just like me being a terrible person to them. Um, but anyway, so, mm. yeah. Well, powerful story. And, and obviously you're also a survivor of cancer and, and still cancer, cancer free, a cancer free, cancer, HIV addiction. Um, you know, yeah. Um, it's been, it's been a long road. <laughs> And now, you know, now you're, you know, talk about what got you to come into no matter what recovery and brought you there and the journey. Of course, it literally just happened. <laughs> it, it, the stars aligned. Like, that's really the best way I know how to explain it. So when I got sober, I had the ability to become a sober living house manager um, when I, got, I first got sober. And that was how I dabbled working in treatment. And... Um, you know, it was rewarding. It was, um, I was getting, you know, free rent in the beginning of my sobriety, which really helped me because I started working a little bit and I could start saving some money so I could start paying off some debt. And like, so it enabled me to like live a carefree, newly sober life. Um, and you know, I was giving back to the community a little bit, but it was definitely more for me to, um, you know, have some stability. So, and I also needed something on my resume that like <laughs> wasn't drug dealing. Um, so, so, um, so that's how I started first working in treatment. And then, um, I got back into the beauty industry 
and I, um, which is what I've done my entire adult life. Um, and you know, I, I grew pretty fast in my role again. Um, so, um, about a year before the pandemic, um, I started doing sober companion stuff on the side as a side hustle, um, which is basically when I would travel um, with people that were going to treatment or I would work on interventions. I was doing a lot with the adolescent interventions and I, you know, I really started getting a taste of, of the help that I was providing in just a very small way to helping get people sober. And, um, you know, the, about a year and a half ago, not even last December. So December, 2021 just passed. So December, 2020, a friend of ours called and there was a treatment center that was, um, going out of business because the pandemic and they couldn't, you know, I mean, I, I, I think the pandemic, like everybody like had to reevaluate everything. So anyway, long story short, they were selling a, a restoration hardware desk. Um, and I really wanted the desk. <laughs> and so I told Tony, I'm like, babe, I want this desk. And we were going to go put it in storage. We didn't have anywhere to put it in our house. And um, we came here to look at the furniture and ended up buying the business. Um, and that's how it happened. Um, you know, we created no matter what recovery, um, we bought, we bought the business December, 2021 and, um, no, December, 2020. So January, 2021 is when we, you know, acquired everything. And then February 1st, we opened. So we've been open a year this February. We'll be open a year. Um, and it all started with us just coming to look at furniture. Hmm. Well, that's literally how it happened. Curious, right? That's a curious story. And, and you're right. It just kind of, it had to have just kind of fell in place or, or it wouldn't happen. Well, it did. And I had gotten laid off from my job during the pandemic and, you know, was sober companioning. And so I had some free time and then my partner was in his role for several years. And, you know, we just decided together to, you know, really, you know, we, we knew that we wanted to help people. We just didn't know how. And so the, way that our program has really morphed over the last year um we opened with one sober living residence um and now we have four um that over the course of a year um and you know we were just trying to help anybody we could in the beginning and now we've really narrowed our clientele we are all inclusive um with a focus on the lgbt community like i said so about 80 percent of our census is queer um or you know lgbt um, and so we have about 20% of our clients that are straight and, um, the way that our community has mixed is so cool because, um, like you walk into one of our sober livings and they're watching drag race and then you walk into another sober living and they're watching football, you know, it's really funny. Um, and our community just is the most amazing thing that has come out of everything. I mean, we have mixes of people and genders and, and, you know, races and ethnicities and just, it's like, we're like a melting pot of people and cultures, which is really cool. And everybody just wants each other to be sober and they're supportive and they go to meetings together and cook together and grill together. And then we obviously have outside events that we do for our, our program. And, um, like whether we take everybody roller skating or to the Hollywood bowl or, you know, whatever, um, we really try to build that sense of community with our clients, um, so that they are getting clinically what they need from the facility. And then in the outside, really having a, a, a network of people so that they have, um, 
you know, just their sober posse and tribe. Um, and it's really just been beautiful. And again, it's really happened organically. Um, we didn't plan in a year or two grow as fast as we have. We just kind of started growing as the need needed. And, um, and so, you know, it started out as a very small community and it's still small compared to a lot of other places, but it, you know, we're more of a boutique facility and we usually have around anywhere from 20 to 30 clients, um, you know, which is great because it, it gives us the ability to have a focus on individualized care and, our treatment team isn't overwhelmed, so every client, you know, meets the clinically the clinical team. We know, we, you know, everybody's names, and um, you know, the, you know, just it's just really I I'm shocked at, at how in the last year, um, no matter what recovery has just blossomed into this beautiful. I don't want to. I hate using the word business and treatment. Like it's, you know, it is a business, but like at the end of the day, we're it's the business of people's lives, yeah. and. And I don't take that lightly Um, uh, because it is, um, you know, it it really is the work that we do is so important. Um, Take the substance abuse and mental health portion, which I can talk about in a second, out of it, you know, it really is that community where people can come and feel accepted and loved, Mm -hmm. most importantly. And for this marginalized community that, you know, has had the bullying or the trauma or the, the sexual trauma, emotional trauma, PTSD, like all of this stuff. Um, and it, it is all basically around wanting to be loved and wanting to be accepted like that. They will no matter what, <laughs> oh, <laughs> they will get no matter what, uh, from us. And, yeah. you know, that is our, that is our mission and that is, you know, what we've been striving for and, and it's working. Well, it is working. You can tell it's working. And so it's it's quite fabulous to hear your story and to have you share that and, and the journey and where you are today and some of the dreams that you have today that you couldn't even fathom having back in the day. Um, and I've, I've loved you've been able to share and that niche that you, you know, that you and, and Tony, you know, cater to and, and really are sensitive to, I think is important too. Um, like you said, it's underserved population and and it's, it's a tough, I mean, it's tough. It's just a tough, you know, it's tough to heal from that and to be able to love yourself and know who you are and have that confidence. Um, I think it's important too, as we, as we kind of wrap up here is to give some contact information of where people can connect with you and, and learn more. Absolutely. So I know we're wrapping up really quick. I just want to say clinically, we offer a holistic approach to treatment. And so we treat the mind, body, and spirit. So when you come to no matter what recovery, um, in addition to the psychoeducational, you know, pieces of CBT, DBT, EMDR, if it's appropriate, seeking safety, anger management, relapse prevention, all that stuff. On the other side, we do everything from like drama therapy to acupuncture, Reiki, yoga, meditation, sound bath. Um, breath work, like we have an all-encompassing program so that clients really get to learn tools that they can apply after they leave treatment. And that was really important to us. Um, so there's that. Um, you know, to follow us on social, um, you know, we're very, <laughs> it's very modern here at No Matter What Recovery. No, um, you can follow us on Instagram at No Matter What Recovery LA um, or Facebook as well. Um, Tony and I are available um, you can check out no matter what recovery.com 
Um, you can look on Google. Um, I think that there are some reviews on there. We have a, you know, a listing with pictures. Um, so you can find us on social or Google. Mm, very cool. I love it. I love that you've been on with us and taking your time and um, to, to share your story and, you know, to share your dreams. And it's, it's been fantastic to have you. Thank you so much. I really genuinely appreciate your time. And thank you for the work that you do.